Um, good morning, everyone. Wow, my Bible is too big with all of these uh, Christmas accoutrements. Um, yeah, good morning, everyone. It is good to be with all of you this morning. It's good. Um, it's really winter out there today. It actually is, you know, beginning to look a lot like Christmas, as they say. Uh, but I'm happy to be here and to start our Advent series. I'm really excited about the sermon series we're going to be going through for this season of Advent. We're calling it Advent, The Beginnings. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the beginning of each of the Gospels, right? There are four Gospels, and there's four uh, Sundays in Advent. We are very smart, us preaching team members. Um, so we're going to look at the beginning of each gospel and think about why does each gospel start this way? What does it tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about the unique particularities of each one of the gospels? I think we tend to kind of take all four and combine them into one in our mind, but each one has its own really cool story and nuances and purposes, and we want to explore that this Advent season together. Uh, so we're going to begin by looking at the Gospel of Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew wasn't the first gospel that was written. That was the Gospel of Mark. Uh, but Matthew is the first in the New Testament because it's this really great bridge between what we see in the Old Testament and the New with lots of connections that we're going to explore this morning. Uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff in this text. I'm excited to get into it, but let's just begin by reading it. So Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 17. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Aminabad, and Aminabad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Everyone, calm down, okay? I know it's super, calm down. We're going to keep going. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Everyone's so excited. It keeps going. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim was the father of Sathiel, and Sathiel the father of Zerubbabel. I love that name, Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, and Abihud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Elihud, and Elihud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. 
Now, I know we don't typically think of texts like these as super exciting texts, and some of you might have fallen asleep just now. But what I want to actually do this morning is convince you that there's a ton of really cool and exciting theology happening in this passage that if we pay careful attention to will reward us richly about who Jesus is and about what the author of the Gospel of Matthew is doing. So I'm going to, again, be sort of wearing more of my Bible teacher hat than my preacher hat this morning, but there's a lot of cool stuff for us to dive into together. The first thing I want to begin with is what I'm going to call the Genesis. So this is point number one, classic three-point sermon, the Genesis. There's a lot that Matthew is doing in this text to link this be the beginning of his gospel to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And it begins in the very first two words. The first two words are translated differently by different English translation. The version I read translates those two words as an account of the genealogy. The NIV translate those words as this is the genealogy of, or the ESV translate them as the book of the genealogy of. But the two words in Greek are literally book of Genesis. That's how, that's how it begins. It's the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Messiah. So Matthew begins right at the forefront by using the word Genesis, the title of the first book of the Bible, to say what is happening here is a new beginning. God in the beginning, in Genesis, created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, but now, Matthew says, God is recreating everything in a sense by sending his son into the world. But it's more than just Matthew using the title of the book of Genesis. Uh, that phrase, the book of the Genesis, is used 10 times in the book of Genesis. Uh, in the translation I'm using, the NRSV, they translate this phrase in Hebrew as, this is the account of. So we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In Genesis 5.1, this is the account of Adam's line. In Genesis 6.9, this is the account of Noah. In Genesis 10.1, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. In Genesis 11.10, this is the account of Shem. In 11.27, this is the account of Terah. In Genesis 25.12, this is the account of Abraham's son Ishmael. In Genesis 25.13, this is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. In Genesis 36.1, this is the account of Esau. And in Genesis 37.2, this is the account of Jacob. This phrase is used 10 times in the book of Genesis, and it really creates an important structure for what's happening in the book of Genesis. It happens five times in, the, uh, in Genesis 1 through 11 before Abraham appears on the scene, and then five times in the rest of Genesis after Abraham and with his sons. So it's a really important structural cue in the book of Genesis to signify what God is doing in the world and what God is doing through the people of Israel. And Matthew takes that phrase, and that is how he begins. That's the first two words of his gospel. So Matthew is beginning by saying, what God began in the book of Genesis, God is continuing and redoing and remaking now in the Messiah Jesus Christ. Matthew is connecting Jesus to the story of Israel to say that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who has come to, in a sense, finish and fulfill and complete God's work of 
creation. So we have Matthew connecting to Genesis, and then next we have Matthew connecting to what I'm gonna call the greats. There are two people in this genealogy that really stand out, and they are David and Abraham. This passage begins an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Um, there's so much going on here, beginning with David. David is someone we know probably most famously from the story of him uh, as a little boy with his little sling and killing Goliath. Um, but David was the second king of Israel after Saul and was known as, as the greatest king of Israel and was certainly remembered in that way as someone who, for the most part, was a good dude who sought after God. Um, and really what's important for our purposes is that he was someone to whom God had promised an eternal kingdom. God says, God told David that his kingship would never end. He would have a line that would lead to God's eternal kingdom. Because of this, the term son of David in the time of the New Testament became a standard term to talk about the Messiah. If you read uh, the writings of Jewish rabbis from this time, that is the way they refer to the Messiah. That's their standard term, the son of David. And it was, I also think, a really rich term in the time of Jesus because about, about 200 years before Jesus, uh, the Jewish people were ruled by the Greeks. And there was this revolt against the Greeks led by this family called the Maccabees that led to a brief period of Jewish self-rule in a dynasty known as the Hasmonean dynasty. Uh, they ruled for about 100, 150 years, and then Rome came in and conquered them. Uh, that revolt with the Maccabean family is where we get the uh, holiday of Hanukkah, which starts tonight. But that family, the Maccabees, were not from the line of David. They were from the tribe of Manasseh. David was from the tribe of Judah. And so they had this revolt and this period of self-rule that looked like it'd be successful for a little bit, but ultimately Pompey, the general Pompey, came and defeated them, and they were under Roman rule. And I think during the time of Jesus, this term son of David was really rich in messianic expectation because they had just had this group of people try to do what the Messiah should do and ultimately not succeed. When Jackie was lighting this candle, she talked about hope. And that's what Matthew's doing here. He is tying Jesus into the messianic hopes of the people of Israel. And he's saying that Jesus is the true Messiah, the true son of David. Not like the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans. Jesus is the one you have been waiting for. The one through whom God is recreating the world. Matthew, however, doesn't just connect uh, Jesus to David he also connects him to Abraham. He says he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, this, this phrase, son of Abraham, is um, not a messianic title. Instead, this was a, a phrase that was used to refer to people who were of the Jewish heritage or people who were like worthy of being called a son of Father Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. So if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who has come to complete God's work in the world, then Jesus himself must be a true Israelite and must be a descendant of Abraham. 
And even more than that, the entire way that Matthew constructs this genealogy is that it goes from Jesus to Abraham. And that's really important because what Matthew is saying is that what God began in Abraham finds its goal and its final purpose, its telos in Jesus. The promises that God made to Abraham, the covenant that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 where God says to Abraham, through you all nations of the world will be blessed. That promise is finding its fulfillment and completion in the person of Jesus. So Matthew connects Jesus to these great figures, to David to say that Jesus is the promised Messiah who will be the true king over God's kingdom, and to Abraham to say that the purposes are being, that the promises God made to Abraham are being fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, There's another cool way that this gets nerdy and technical, but I like that, so I'm going to share it with you. There's another really cool way that Matthew connects Jesus to David through this genealogy. The genealogy, as you may have noticed, is three sets of 14 generations, right? And Matthew writes it this way, and then at the end, he calls it out in case you missed it. So there's 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon when Israel went into exile, and then 14 generations from exile to the Messiah. Now, um, this is probably not something we should read literally. Uh, If you compare Matthew's genealogy to Luke's or to genealogies in the Old Testament, we'll see that Matthew was exercising a little bit of creative freedom in how he constructs the numbers of generations. Um, I think that's totally okay because what's happened, the um, Greek phrase that's being used here for um, was the father of doesn't have to mean that there's only a one generation gap, right? Someone can, in the the Greek that's being used, someone can be the father of someone and it can be a multi-generation gap. So Matthew is really intentionally creating this pattern of three sets of 14. Why is he doing that? Uh, The answer that is most common among scholars and that I think is most convincing is that Matthew, that structure links Jesus to David in Hebrew, or at least in biblical Hebrew, uh, they don't have separate characters for numbers and letters. Letters are numbers, numbers are letters. So every word has a numeric value. The name David, three letters, has a numeric value of 14. So Jesus, so Matthew is in the structure of the genealogy linking Jesus to David. And it's can't be a coincidence. David's name is 14. David is the 14th person listed in the genealogy. The whole structure of it says that Jesus is the king of the, the Davidic king that the people of Israel have been waiting for. So that brings us to our third point, which is the goal. Why is Jesus coming to do all of this? And the answer is to save people from their sins. And I think, think we um, need to think about that phrase, to save people from these sins, and ask, first of all, who are the people in that, uh, that are being talked about here? And to answer that question, I wanna bring our attention to something that's really cool and really unique in this genealogy. This genealogy mentions four women throughout the text. Uh, we get Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and uh, Bathsheba. 
This is really unusual for the time. To include these women in the genealogy was not standard practice. So why does Matthew include these? One theory that's been put forth a lot is that Matthew is including these women because these are all like especially sinful women. And I don't, I don't think that's really true. I'm going to put my like feminist Bible scholar on hat now and say, I don't, I don't think that's really true. I think there's some sexism in that reading. I think what's actually happening is that Matthew is emphasizing that the people Jesus came from are both Jew and Gentile, and that the people Jesus has come for are both Jew and Gentile. Let me explain. Let's think about these four women. The first woman that's mentioned is Tamar in verse 3. We read the story of Tamar in Genesis 38. Uh, it's kind of, it is a crazy story to modern ears. Tamar was the wife of the son of Judah, and um, when her husband died, uh, there was this practice at the time that the br if there was a widow who didn't have children, uh, the like, husband's brothers should have children with the widow to continue the lineage and the descendants of, of their brother. Um, so when Tamar's husband died, the brothers didn't do that. So what Tamar does is she like, goes out on the road and puts a veil on, and her father-in-law, Judah, walks by and thinks that she's a prostitute, and then like, calls her out and hires her and sleeps with her, and then she has twins. Um, people have looked back on this story and been like, wow, Tamar is this really sesquily promiscuous, terrible person. But if you actually read the story, all she does is put a veil on and stand by the side of the road, and Judah's the one who walks by and is like, yeah, I want that. Um, if you also look at like Jewish tradition, um, they don't, they don't hold that same sort of contempt for her. What's happening, I think, is what's important to realize here is that Tamar is not a Jew. It's a little unclear if she's a Canaanite or an Aramean, but she's not a Jewish person who's being brought into this lineage. We see the same thing with Rahab in verse 5. The story of Rahab is told in Joshua 2 and 6. She is a famous harlot who hid the spies who were scoping out Jericho in her house. And then when um, the leaders of Jericho were looking for them, she sent them out another way. She also has been really critiqued for being a prostitute. But in Jewish tradition, uh, Rahab is known and praised as one of the most beautiful women in the world, as a convert to Judaism who became a part of the family, and even as a prophet. But she also was not a Jew. She was a Canaanite who was being brought into this lineage. The third woman mentioned is Ruth in verse 5. Ruth might be the woman on this list we're most familiar with. There's a whole book of the Bible named after her. Um, Ruth was a Moabitist, not a Jew. She lived in Moab when Naomi and her husband and sons went to Moab to escape a famine, and then she married one of Naomi's sons, but then all the men in that family died. And so uh, Naomi and Ruth uh, went back to Israel. When they went back to Israel, Ruth ends up meeting this man Boaz, marrying him, and she ends up becoming the great-grandmother of David. Uh, Ruth, Ruth, like all these women, has been critiqued uh, for immorality, especially because there's the story of her and Boaz, where she comes to Boaz in the middle of the night and lays by his bed, and uh, the text says that she uncovers his feet, which is, which is, which is ambiguous. Um, in Hebrew, the word foot can be a euphemism for, you know, the part of a man that dangles. 
Um, so it's a little unclear what's happening in that story, if it's a euphemism right there or not. Uh, but Ruth, in Jewish tradition, is held in incredibly high regard as a convert, as the great-grandmother of David, as a mother of kings, and as an ancestor to the Messiah, this Moabitess who has been brought into God's family. The last woman mentioned is Bathsheba in verse 6. I think you can see where this is going. Bathsheba, uh, famously the one who was bathing on a roof, and David sees her and then calls her to his palace and then ends up sleeping with her. She gets pregnant, and then David kills her husband. Um, also has been criticized for being scandalous in certain ways, but she was just... You know, she was just bathing. And David was the one who saw her and initiated everything and then killed her husband. Uh, but Bathsheba, like all of these women, was not a Jewish person. She was a Hittite, uh, married to Uriah, a Hittite. So I think what Matthew is doing in including these four women unusually is, is he's saying, I'm doing all of this work to link Jesus to the Jewish story. I'm saying that in Jesus, the Jewish God is recreating the world and the people in it. I'm saying that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who fulfills the promises to Abraham, who is the Davidic king that we've all been waiting for. But at the same time, Jesus comes from a line that includes foreigners in the people of God, and he is coming for both the people of Israel and for Gentiles. Praise God that we are included in this story. And the real goal of Jesus is summed up really well in um, a passage, not that we read, but a few verses after what we read. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, here the angel is announcing to Joseph that Mary is going to have a son. And the angel says to Joseph, Mary will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus from the Hebrew Yeshua means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is the promised, waited, expected one who has come to the Jewish people and the Gentile people to save us from our sins. Matthew begins his gospel with this incredible genealogy that might seem boring on its face, but is packed with rich theology about who Jesus is. And Matthew begins his story of Jesus by looking backwards and by saying, this is where Jesus has come from. This is what God has done. And because of that, we can be sure that God is moving in our midst now. And I think that's what the season of Advent is about. The season of Advent is a time where we remember what God has done in Christ where we look back on how God has created this incredible story from creation to Abraham to David to Jesus in a, in a manger in Bethlehem, and how God has brought us into this story, Jews and Gentiles, to save us from the sin, the brokenness, the evil, the injustice that is all around us. I hope that we can be people who live in that hope. 
Because when we look back on what God has done, we can be sure that God has not stopped moving. That God will continue to work in us and that Christ is with us here now. Let's be people who live in that hope always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful for this incredible story, for this way that you are working in the world, for this plan that you have had from the beginning, a plan that is gracious to us and loving to us, even though we don't deserve it. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the gospel of Matthew and for how Matthew shows us that Jesus is this expected Jewish Messiah who comes to save us from our sins. We thank you that you have bought us, that you have made us, and that we are yours. We thank you that no matter what happens, we can remember what you have done and be confident that you are a God who works among your people, that you are a God who will never leave us or forsake us, and that you will continue to do your good work in us. Lord, we commit ourselves to you this day, and we ask that you will make us your people. We ask that you will fill us with confidence in what you have done and with hope for what you will do. And in this season of Advent, God, help us to wait expectantly for the coming of your Son, and help us to celebrate you in every moment of our lives. And we pray this in the name of our great Messiah, Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.